Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Oh, yeah. We are back. We are doing it again. Doing uh, it how, again. How y'all doing? Welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Uh, in addition to reading books, we sometimes talk about current events. And 99.9% oh, yeah. of the time when we talk about those current events, I go, David, tell me about current events. <laughs> this is not that week. This is oh, Nathan's boy. week. It is current this event is time. So, uh, anticipation. as it would happen, this is a weird confluence of current events. So, obviously, there are other, there are always Ooh, other things going on in the world, and we usually focus on on those that are a little bit more pressing. Um, yeah, definitely like a little Columbia bit more and things like uh, that. Maybe we'll touch on that a little bit. Yeah, um, but uh, this week, as it happens, there is a current event that so perfectly intersects with what we're doing with this book and me and David's local connection. Uh, and and everything else that it felt like we kind of had to talk about it, and that is we are going to dive into a little bit of what the fuck is the veiled prophet, and oh, why God. is it all over the internet right now? I I um, like how you introed it as me and David's local event. Like I have anything to fucking do with the veiled prophet person. You other live than, close. You, we both live, live in the yes. Saint, uh, uh, close to the St. Louis area. This is a St. Louis thing, both, and yes. it also is very integrally tied to the period during Reconstruction uh, and during much. the events that we're talking about. Very much. In fact, uh, um, it's very tied to, to railroads and, and things, which is, is I'm gonna get there. Yeah. You 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 backseat. Don't take my thunder. No, no. I was. I'm I not worked trying for to take this thunder. One. I was. I'm not trying to take your thunder. I was just going to say about two episodes ago, we talked about a railroad, a couple railroad projects getting abandoned. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Um, and this is all linked up. So, so to do this, we're going to do it in true Mark's Madness fashion, which is we're going to go through a boatload of context and uh, events that happened in and around this time to kind of explain what the hell this is. If you are, if you live a much more uh, fulfilling life, and based on the fact that a lot of people outside this country listen to this podcast, I, I trust that you are um, and are not tied up in petty uh, American weird news cycles. But one of the news cycles was that uh, a person by the name of Ellie Kemper, who is an actress of so, uh, she was on The Office, she's on The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, she does other things. Mm-hmm. It came out that she was the queen of what was being uh, called on Twitter the KKK queen. She the, was the queen the, of the, the racism the- pageant. Yeah, yeah, which is, if you want to get really technical, incorrect. not accurate. It's incorrect. Is incorrect. Is, is not accurate, and we're going to get we're gonna get into that. It's not accurate. It was a fun shorthand, but, but it doesn't under- It there. doesn't get- Yeah, it's, it's a the shorthand in there, and the problem. And the shorthand and the spirit of it is actually far more in line with with labor than it is with the necessarily straight up and down racism. And we're going to get into that. Well, as, racism as we has a lot this. to do with labor as is. It I does. Mean. It does. But again, it's it's all it's all intertwined. It's all a little bit. Again, this is mm-hmm. this is there. Um, so this all generated. Uh, this all started back during the thing that David has been dying dying yes. to talk about this entire time which is the panic of 1873 oh my god uh, okay can i can i say it, a few things about it without stealing your you thunder? can say absolutely please no no go ahead okay. i'm more than happy to see the floor okay so panic of 1873 was kind of a big deal in that we've talked about multiple <laughs> you mean times the original great depression was a big Again, thing yeah a little bit of big thing you know so we talked about multiple times and you just you just you know jumped right on it and i think i've mentioned it before is you know we talked about before anything before the Great Depression, we call a panic. Anything after the Great Depression, we call a recession. We call the Great Depression depression, but they're all depressions. This one was the Great Depression at the time, and it was truly global. 
Okay. Um, yes, it sir. kind of kicked off from some shit in Europe. That was probably happening for several factors, but a big one being, you know, a dump in cotton production, right, as capitalism was riding the coattails of the South and the South was caught up in a civil war. Uh, but ha- certainly didn't have nothing to do with things like precious metals. And Germany oh, yeah. decided, hmm, silver's losing some value, which was happening a lot. There was especially a big, um, I think they're called tolls, but where they, they like mined silver in Virginia that had just been found. It was like, I mean, silver was starting to get cheap. And um, so Germany it was, was plentiful like. Out, it was plentiful out west, too, especially in like Nevada and those. I mean, obviously oh, it's called yeah. the Silver State for a reason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And. Um, and so with those silver discoveries, it was like, yeah, we don't want our money on silver. And so Germany took their money off of silver. And after a couple of years, that was starting to stress the U.S. currency that was backed by silver and gold bullion. Um, and uh, it, funny thing about this is the uh, Treasury Secretary that uh, pushed this bill to get off silver and make it all gold – his name was Knox. You might have, have heard of a fort with that name. <laughs> he has a fort. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the U.S. right, and this is right at 1873. The U.S. has already had a, you know a rough economy because it's rebuilding from a civil war. It was already dealing with a railroad bubble, like railroad prospecting was crashing, and every depression has a bubble, and this one was a big, big railroad one, right? And so dealing with that, uh, dealing with some, some fights and some labor strikes, which actually got really bad into the depression itself. Uh, and I'll get into that in a second. Um, but, but finding some of that, the U.S. economy was starting to get a little shaky. And with the silver issue, that it was not tenable to keep the silver bullion, but they were debating, you know, should they have another precious metal back at the, you know, what, what should you, the u.s money be backed by right because it was silver and gold and the controversy went ahead and pulled silver okay this was one of the biggest corruption accusations under ulysses s grant um, Yeah, it's called the crime it's called they they refer to it as the crime of 73 they refer to it as the crime of 73 yes and when they pulled the coinage coinage act of 19 of 1873 yeah and what was really nasty is people had like the silver bullion invested they had like banks like deposited their silver bullion right and so they went to go cash it out because silver was being pulled from the currency. And the U.S. was like, yeah, we don't honor that. We still do honor it in international trade, which kind of, you know, tempered it some. But locally, we don't honor it. You can't cash out silver. It's not a thing. Too bad. Your money's gone. whoop de doo da Right. And this is long yeah, for a lot greatly, of regulations. Which greatly crunched the overall money supply. So lo- oh, the, the yeah. supply of money suddenly tightened, which yeah. put a lot of pressure on farmers um, and, and workers and people like that. P- small, Absolutely. smaller people got crunched huge, especially on farmers who were recovering after the war. And, mm-hmm. and this was, you know, I mean, a really big thing because they were fighting off inflation. Well, the second this bill goes into action pretty well, bam, huge depression that just spiraled and got worse and worse and worse. And the depression was already largely riding a railroad bubble, but railroads were still being constructed. Out west, they're, of course, constructed on Chinese labor. Um, this was something where, like, in, in China, this was during the hundred years of, uh, what is it, under hundred years of shame or uh, hundred years of embarrassment? I can't remember the name of it all of a sudden. Um, but uh, But basically, Britain had come in, had 
colonized, you know, pushed a bunch of wars on them and forced them to trade and purchase opium. And then opium was basically an enormous health disaster. Like even Great Britain's hundred million killed in India in a hundred years and several little genocides acting, you know, adding up to one broad genocide. Um, obviously famously Winston Churchill starved four million, uh, Indian people in the 1930s. You know, that, that paled in comparison to how many people that, were killed and had their lives destroyed by this this century of of I cannot think of this century of shame or something I suddenly can't think hundred years of shame hundred years hundred years of shame years of shame and so of course Chinese people fled because <laughs> they were fl- you know this caused the poverty caused disease the drug addiction caused bad food production and so they were dealing with typhoid breakouts and all kinds of things well then they went to work on railroads where they were deeply exploited and in unbelievably bad and dangerous work conditions so of course they got sick. And when they got sick, this was where the whole sick man of China racist trope comes from. Oh, they're sick over there in China, if you're even knowledgeable enough about the world to know that. Now they're sick here. They must be some vector of disease. It can't possibly be what Great Britain's done to them and what they're doing, what we're doing to them with the railroads here. It can't be material conditions. They've got to be like disease-ridden people or whatever the hell, right? Um, so that's happening. But Eastern railroads are still taken up by white and black labor. 1877, right as things are possibly coming out of this uh, depression, of course, workers are going to fight for that and they're going to benefit from it. Workers are still being deeply exploited on the railroads. And so they start railroad strikes. Actually, uh, anyone who's familiar with the game Monopoly or the backstory uh, kind of knows that it was done up by a, I believe it was a communist woman and three Quaker men who wanted to point out how terrible um that uh, capitalism was and that's why it's called monopoly it was made to not be fun and everyone kind of loses because it's funded or it it was funded it's created by you know a communist and 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 these quakers to not be fun and show how bad capitalism is and it becomes this big game and then communists lose because their their anti-capitalist game is thought of as fun and patented with with the intellectual intellectual property everywhere no one thinks of monopoly is fun i'm sorry it's not it's a it's a miserable game that you play to torment your family and friends but fun enough to sell. And they did change the rules to make it more fun. It was that much worse before. Uh, but a detail they put in, and I don't know why they got lazy on the the, the uh, uh, fourth railroad on Short Line, which was named after some brand new New Jersey trolley thing or something. Uh, but in 1977, these mass railroad strikes started. and 1877. I am so sorry. 1877. Uh, these mass railroad strikes uh, started. And they started... Um, in Pennsylvania, or yeah, in Reading, no, I'm sorry, in 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 Maryland, I'm sorry, they started in Maryland at yeah. the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Station. Yeah. Uh, they started this just massive strike, okay, and it was known as B&O Railroad for short. That, of course, is one of the monopoly railroads. It kind of crescendoed and ended. It was a year of mass strikes all across these railroads in Reading, Pennsylvania, where there was a strike of two railroad companies, the Reading Railroad and the Pennsylvania Railroad. And that led to the Reading Railroad Massacre, uh, which had somewhere between 40 and 70 casualties. Um, and that was, yeah, the I think big, it's like 61 dead is the, is the, yeah. the generous estimate. Yeah. So, um, and, and so that's the reading railroad massacre. And so of course, when they constructed monopoly so that people understood this history and never forgot it, they made the railroads reading railroad and Pennsylvania railroad and B and O railroad actually. Um, but this kind of debatably maybe prolonged things even another couple of years. And if not, was at least a reflection of the working conditions and, and issues at the time. 
and that is so that is a great great overview of the panic of 1873 um the the actual like mechanism that started toppling everything the sort of like if you go back to uh the crash in 08 uh you you can point to lehman brothers collapsing and then that always a bank falls and that triggers a chain reaction almost every single time and all these banks all these banks were hurt there there was also uh other factors that kind of you know comorbidity sort of thing here um the chicago fire of 1871 the great boston fire of 1872 there was a massive strain on bank reserves during these because they had to rebuild all that property they had to loan out all this money Mm -hmm. um so bank reserves drop so you have very low bank reserves you've already constricted the money supply due to silver and then you have the failure of jay cook and company they were uh funding multiple railroads uh most normally most notably the northern pacific railway and it came up that they weren't going to be able to find a market for those bonds they had all these bonds that they were going to need to pay uh no one wanted them no one would pay for them um and then all of a sudden everything hit it collapses that leads to a bunch of insurance companies that collapsed shockingly the only insurance companies that survived the common factor among the companies that survived is that they ran tontines um i don't know if anyone you you are probably better (laughs) equipped to explain tontines i know it's something to do with dead people and it sounds like a pyramid scheme it does. It does sound like primacy, and it's actually much more common in Europe. I know France has a huge proportion of their uh, insurance industry is based on tontines, from what I understand. Mm. Um, but a tontine is essentially everyone pays in to this group life insurance policy, this group policy of some sort, and you pay in, and you start getting it's it's like an annuity. So you start getting annual regular payouts. Well, then one person dies. Their payouts get amortized, get split up, and split out over the rest of the group. So now your payment is higher because Joe died. Well, now Steve dies. Okay, now my payment's even higher. And this keeps happening. It's like a it's like a mortality lottery where you're hoping to be the last man standing because the longer you stay alive, the more payments you're getting because everyone else is dying. And then as soon as the last person dies, boom, it's all up, and the bank takes the the insurance company gets the rest of that money, and that's so their bet is, is that you're going to die. This is like a mix between a pyramid scheme and gladiators uh-huh yeah no it's a very it's a very morbid very crazy system um but that was the that was the the insurance companies that were still alive were ones running off of tontines um so obviously this sets off a lot of effects and you transition pretty seamlessly into the 1877 strikes the yeah. one we're going to focus on is the st louis general strike of 1877 uh and this one was led it grew out of the great railroad strike in general of 1877 it was largely organized by the knights of labor this is sorry guys i did not this all came about very quickly i don't have uh the books to cite this I'm, I'm having to go a little bit of wikipedia here so bear with me um but but that is what we're working with um it was largely organized by the knights of labor and the marxist leaning working man's party we know the working man's party it's the uh party that that marx communicates with most frequently back and forth it's it's yeah the de facto version of what marx was running over in europe as far as i understand it yes um so during the long depression you had all of these all this unrest all these panics and then all, all obviously where is this going to happen it's not like the higher ups are going to start taking pay cuts and stuff like that they're going to crack down on wages like you said these wages got so depressed that there was uh, a, a work stoppage that basically came into effect and in east st louis uh, which is actually in illinois so uh, again it's that confusing kansas city missouri kansas kind of thing but east st louis which is in illinois uh on July 22nd, the train workers held a secret meeting and resolved to call for an increase in wages and strike if their demands weren't met. 
Uh, there was also a meeting of the Working Man's Party uh, during this time, and they came up with these resolutions. Whereas the United States government has allied itself on the side of capital and against labor, therefore resolved that we, the Working Man's Party of the United States, heartily sympathize with the employees of all the railroads in the country who are attempting to secure justice and equitable reward for their labor, resolved that we will stand by them in this most righteous struggle of labor against robbery and oppression through good and evil report to the end of the struggle. Uh this is also, if you remember East St. Louis, this was the home of the East St. Louis riots uh, that took mm-hmm. the lives of so many people uh, that Dr. Du Bois wrote yes. about uh, that we tried to read and were unable to because of the graphic nature of it. Um, yeah, but so those said, were a again, couple this, decades later. That was uh, about 30 years later, about 30 years yeah, later, 1917. Yeah. So exactly 40 years later. Um, okay. Yeah. So the demands were rejected, and all of a sudden, this strike came about. So this was starting as a railroad strike. Uh, there was It was described as quiet and orderly. The trains basically stopped. They were letting all train traffic through except freight traffic. They were basically saying, passenger trains, you can go through. Livestock uh, feed, you can go through. But freight, they wanted to cut down the freight. They wanted to basically stop capital where it was moving and, and let people through. Um, eventually, that uh, throughout the day, they, they had the town in like eight hours, they said. The strikers had complete control of the town. Um, and that continued throughout the day. Then the next day, they started adding passenger trains. Um, and that got a little bit more contentious because obviously now it's that it's the same kind of thing you think of when you start blocking, blocking highways. Okay, now yeah. you're affecting other people. That's going to get more attention. That's going to get more attention. Uh, Tension yeah, is going to rise. And you need attention, but there are going to there is going to be pushback that comes with it. People that mm-hmm. that are going to pearl clutch and not want to be inconvenienced. They just want to. They might want to give a thumbs up to your cause, but they don't want to. They they don't want to have to deal with it. As a result of the strike, various federal receivers, and then here's our here's our first tie-in: Secretary of the Interior Carl Schurz. Mm, Ladies and gentlemen, oh Carl's back. <laughs> oh boy. Carl's Carl's back. He's not writing big long letters that Andrew is, Johnson's is ignoring he anymore. A Seven thousand word scrawl on the strike. <laughs> he's back and he's here to tell you about the labor strikes. Um, he urged the Secretary of War to intervene. Carl, you're on my shit list again. Uh, Schurz wrote that no United States marshal, unless backed by federal troops, can restore order or protect men willing to work. The presence of federal troops will form a rallying point and do much to restore order. John Pope was directed to protect railroads and promote peace. We remember Pope. He's one of the military uh, general. He's one of the leaders that had been sent to some of these various locations we've already talked about to to help enforce Reconstruction. Yeah. Um, he was ordered this, there with instructions. The, oh, the yeah, cracks, ahead. the cracks, and the issues with the anti-slavery party being the Northern Corporate Party are already starting to show. But of course, that comes about in bourgeoisie democracy, and that comes about when the poor whites of the South were allying with the the planters over their own interests as workers. Yep. And so the people of St. Louis were apprehensive about the strike. Many expected some form of bloodshed. Well, yeah, duh. On the night of the twenty-first, communist leaders held meetings across the city. Threats of burning newspaper buildings were made, processions of people marched through the streets, and the city government was reluctant to act as they had less than a 1,000 arms and feared they could not effectively deal with the strike. Their 360-man police force, while many were retained in readiness of some sort of outbreak, remained strangely inert during the upheaval. After urging from Davis, efforts began, led by municipal authorities and various prominent citizens, to raise a 5,000-man force. So now the cops are getting involved, and we know how that's going to go. Yeah, yeah. So basically, especially, I know modern st- St. Louis cops are especially bad. I don't know how they were a hundred and forty years ago, but I've got an idea bad. that they weren't the best. Yeah, 
And the the long story short here is that this all escalated the next day. There was there was a general strike that started. Uh, so you had copper workers. You had uh, uh, the the coppers. Yeah, they resolved not to work. Twenty five hundred people gathered at the Union Depot. Um, you had a lot of people suddenly show up and were ready to go. Beef canners joined the strike. Um, the Union Street Railway was refused. They wouldn't let people use the railway. Uh, the city was virtually unpoliced. They said a request to protect private property was made by employers and refused. Um, <laughs> there was a committee of general oh, safety man. that was. Uh huh. Oh, this is so good so and far. I'm so worried about its what direction it's going to take. Yeah, at around 10.30, a large uh, group appeared. The rioters were made calmer by information that Davis had increased his troops to 600 men and stood ready to respond. Um, by the 27th, basically, the authorities began to stop the mobs. The Union Depot was held by strikers until 11 a.m. A battalion of 400 men was dispatched to retake the depot. This was compared at the time, colloquially, to the Paris Commune. They were oh, literally making direct really? comparisons that this... this because this is like... Less than ten years after the Paris Commune, too. Yeah, it was very. It was contemporarily that was compared something I to forgot the to mention. In the Panic of eighteen seventy three, was a big part of Germany going away from silver was the Franco Prussian War. Even though mm-hmm. Germany completely dominated that war, wars cost a lot of money, and of course, the Paris Commune was a part of the Paris siege in that war. Yep. Uh, but basically, on the morning of the 27th, the Chicago Railroad strike had ended. The Illinois governor directed seven companies of the Illinois National Guard to St. Louis. And then by August 1st, it was overwhelmed. The strike was out and fears of another strike kind of loomed for the rest of the summer. So it was a very short event. It happened over a couple days. Um, no, no major. Um, there, there was there were deaths. I don't have an exact death total from this. I apologize. Um, but it was it was mostly bloodless is what it was described as. It was very much not a violent insurrection in the way that some of these are. Um, and no one got mowed down like in the commune or something like that. So, yeah. Eh, um, but some of their gains were made. Um, some of the some of their actions were they. I think some of the pay uh, in, the pay decreases were like rolled back kind of a thing. Um, so they got a little bit of what they were asking for, but not the whole kit and caboodle. So this all happens. That takes us into. Where so so how the hell does this all tie into a weird debutante ball? Um well in 1878, a year later, a grain executive and former Confederate cavalryman, which always bodes well, uh Charles Slayback oh, yeah. called a meeting of local business and civic leaders. This is an article in the Atlantic by Scott Buchamp. Bochamp. Bucamp. I don't know, something like that. Sure. Um, and he cites the book. Uh, the best book written on this is by, and I'll get there in a minute. It was a guy from uh, Northwestern Missouri State University wrote a book about the the whole Veiled Prophet organization that I want to get into. But God, I, we've got enough on our plate. Thomas, uh, no, Thomas yeah. Moore is the poet that they base this off of. Um, so he called a meeting of local business and civic leaders. They were really riled up about this because this riot also had uh, the the general strike had this weird component of black and white labor were kind of working together. Now we know. When they say black and white labor working together, we know behind the scenes there was a lot of tension with union organizing with black and white labor. Yes. And so this unity may not have been as widespread as they feared it might be because, again, as we've seen from Du Bois, there was a lot of contention uh, amongst black and white organizers, especially yeah, again, unions during this time. Yeah, again, we, I mean, we talked about that with the Workers' Party had, had issues with that, too, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he wanted to form a secret society that would blend the pomp and ritual of New Orleans Mardi Gras with the symbolism of the poet Irish poet Thomas Moore. And so from Moore's poetry, Slayback and the St. Louis elite created this myth of the veiled prophet of Corazon. I kid you not. This is all this is all here. 
a mythic traveler who inexplicably decided to make St. Louis his base of operations. This feels like Mormonism. Why are the why are the tribes yeah. all coming to Missouri to to do their blessing? I don't know. This is weird. Um the entire process was suffused with an elaborate ritual. A person would be chosen by a secret board of local elites to anonymously play the role of the veiled prophet. That's these pictures, and I'll make sure we 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 include a picture of this as the episode artwork for this week. Uh, but these okay. guys in these weird veils, um, surrounded by these these Eastern, uh, like these Turkish-looking uh, Bengal. Uh, whatchamacallit, like bodyguards that are all done up in like brown face and weird beards and stuff like that. It's oh, very geez. weird. It makes no damn sense. Um, it's a debutante so, ball. They never make sense except racism. Exactly. A person would be chosen in secret to play the role of the Veiled Prophet. The Veiled Prophet would choose a queen of love and beauty. This is the role that Ellie Kemper was selected for in 1999 uh, from among the uh, balls attendees. Uh. Now, the other people... Uh, if you want to know, uh, people who were also included in the Veiled Prophet that that won the Queen of Love and Beauty, some of the names that may jump out, um, the Danforths, the Bushes, the Schnooks, the Deloges, um, some the the Meritzes. So basically, if you're from St. Louis, all of these names uh, will ring in some level or another because this is all yeah. the upper crust of the city. It's all the elite of this city. It's all their kids, essentially. Oh, ab- absolutely. Like, you're just naming off big local business after big local business. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd say mm-hmm. local. I mean, the bushes are, AB is enormous. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's incredible. It's it's all across. Schnooks is our local is the local grocery store in the area. They yeah, own all the, Merit's, the, the grocery Merit's stores. Is still this huge. No one except the people that work there know what it does. I guess it's a travel agency, but it has like tons customer of people loyalty there. and stuff like that. They do like I loyalty programs I, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I don't. No one. Yeah, it's like support to to customers for other companies. I don't know, but it's a huge ass office in Fenton. Um, yeah, I mean these are big big names you know and and, and yep. you'll know local st louis names i don't i didn't hear you say schlafly but like that's another big one that in, no that was the other one thank you schlafly schlafly was in there there you go you know i mean th- these are these are the kind of names that like you just know from being in st louis exactly uh so the queen of love and beauty he would dance a royal quadrille and uh, and anoint her with a gift uh which was often so expensive they became family heirlooms so we're talking like crown jewels tiaras pearls things like that just ridiculously expensive gifts yeah the ball this ball was accompanied by a spectacular parade and fair in october of 1878 the civic elites organized the first fair and they estimated it attracted like fifty thousand spectators uh there were at least two reasons slayback and his peers created the veiled prophet one was 300 miles north. They were terrified of Chicago. St. Louis always has this inferiority complex about Chicago. Chicago had been surpassing mm-hmm. them as a shipping yeah. and a pro- production uh, capital. So they wanted to get their they wanted to get their cred back. Very much like the 1904 Olympics World Fair. Um, yeah, which all, which if you know the St. history Louis of that Chicago is, pissing matches. Yeah, it, the 1904 World Fair is is entirely a mix between absurd amounts of racism and pissing matches with chicago that's why 1904 world's fair exactly and to this day the st louis zoo is entirely built around exhibits from the 1904 world's fair the Mm -hmm. birdcage is still there it's deeply tied to like forest park region city history 
So St. Louis needed in every way symbolically to remind its citizens of its stature. The VP parade were called the Antebellum St. Louis Agricultural and Mechanical Fair, a trade show and harvest festival combined. Perhaps more fundamentally, though, the VP activities were a response to a growing labor unrest in the city, which we just hit on, much of it involving cooperation between white and black workers. A year before the founding of the Order of the Great Veiled, of the Order of the Veiled Prophet was the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, which we just talked about. Uh, it involved 1,500 striking workers. We just talked about all that. The strike ended when 5,000 recently deputized special police aided federal troops in forcing the strikers to disperse. Nowadays, you'd imagine these as the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world. Um, yeah. These special police are always going to be these deputized, you know, your three percenters, your guys sitting on top of game stops with AR-15s. Those kind of guys are getting, getting enlisted to break it up. Uh, Thomas Spencer, who wrote the book on this, if you want a book on this, the St. Louisville Prophet Celebration, Power on Parade, 1877-1995 is the book. Um, the primary goal of the VP event was to take back public stage from populist demands for social and economic justice. More than just a series of gaudy floats traversing the city streets, the parade and all its pomp was meant to reinforce the values of the elite on the working class of the city. The symbol of a mystical, benevolent figure whose identity is a mystery. Only two veiled prophets have ever had their identity revealed. One was the original one and one was done in the 70s due to an act of sweet, sweet sabotage where a uh, protester repelled yes. down a power line <laughs> and ripped off the guy's mask to reveal it was one of the VPs of Monsanto uh, in the 70s, which, again, <laughs> another power structure of St. Louis oh. that we love so much. Yeah, again, you yeah you know you know from St. Louis, and that one's like like AB. It's it's a little bit bigger. In fact, Monsanto is primarily not that other other companies weren't developing Agent Orange, but Monsanto had the primary Agent Orange contract uh, in yep. Vietnam, and and was a major part of that genocide. And of course, makes. Uh, is bought up by Bayer, but makes pesticides and things like that to that day. Famously, Roundup is is Monsanto now Bayer, yep. um, and of course, famously, and we've talked a lot about we've talked a lot about that on the show. In basically, the past. being carcinogen. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they're they're a big deal. But uh, even that the lady repelling, I did know a little bit about this story. So it was like her and like three other protesters that that did this, and when she fell, she actually was getting arrested, but had convinced. The uh, the people like the cops arresting her that she had just fallen off the balcony and she was just an attendee and then and then when they left her alone she like went up and ripped the veil off. Yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty great. It was a very Mission Impossible esque yeah. uh, stunt that they pulled. It was really good. Um, and it was meant to serve as a sort of empty shell that contained the accumulated privilege and power of the status quo. In fact, to underline the message of class and race hegemony, the image of the first veiled prophet is armed with a shotgun and a pistol in striking similar appearance to a Klansman. This is that image that was going around and that is going around that shows a person basically in a white hood um, with a white thing and a shotgun and a pistol in one hand. Um, this yeah. was this was revealed so it would be readily observed from the accoutrements of the prophet that the procession is not likely to be stopped by streetcars or anything else. The reference to streetcars is it a direct reference to the rot to the the strike and the riots of 1877 um this is a message that was very clear we the bankers and businessmen have a monopoly on violence and wealth we are grand and mysterious and also to be feared it turned out that the first veiled prophet by the way was st louis police commissioner john g priest Mm-hmm. So again, mm-hmm. all of it tying together. He was an active participant in quelling the railroad strikes the year before. 
Of course, few things struck more fear into the hearts of city fathers as white-black labor cooperation. Cooperation between black and white workers during the 1877 strike led anti-labeler newspapers to label a parade thrown in support of the strikes a riot. Inevitably, after a few minor looting incidents led to the theft of bread and soap from a few local stores, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch characterized the strikers as tramps and loafers who were anxious to pillage and plunder. Again, this should all sound very familiar. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the specter of interracial flexing of labor muscle inspired to an armed citizens militia that marched in counter protest to the working class demonstration. It sounds tragically reminiscent of recent events in St. Louis. This was written back in 2012. I want to, yeah, 2014. So this is back yeah. during, uh, when, when every, when right, Black Lives right, Matter and Michael Ferguson, Brown. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, the first veiled prophet took the theme of progress and wisdom, and according to Spencer, equated wisdom with wealth. While many 19th century parades were fairly democratic and celebrated a sort of play or reversal of social order, a major element of the Mardi Gras parades that inspired it, the veiled prophet proceedings emphasized the existing power structure. The 1878 parade displayed a tableau of inevitable progress over 17 floats, beginning with the icy desolation of early earth and culminating in the grand excess of the Gilded Age industrialism with all its attendant pomp. The notion of progress was portrayed as the inevitable result of unfettered capitalism instituted by its white male leaders. Slayback, the organizer of the proceedings, also threw in a grab bag of odd mythological references to properly mystify the thongs of people gathered to witness. The traditional VP celebration has represented for St. Louis a perceived link between different components of the community in a holiday celebration. This always happens on the 4th of July, while also reinforcing the notion of a benevolent cultural elite. Many average citizens knew exactly what the VP ball and fair represented, and their dissent became nearly as much a convention as the fair itself. St. Louis didn't exactly love this. Um, In the earliest years of parade, there was public backlash against upsetting racial stereotypes depicted on the float. Uh, It should not surprise anyone that African and Jewish members were not admitted into the VP until the late 70s, 1979. They admitted their first black members, three doctors. Um, and pea shooters were sold at local stores at the time of the parade so that bystanders could pelt the ostentatious floats as they came by. Mm. Uh, unions often held counter-protests to the VP parade, and they were seen as the direct uh, direct dissent, uh, the, the direct counter to what this was. They were trying to suppress labor activity in, in, in St. Louis and in the area. Yeah, one one um, unique thing about St. Louis, not that there aren't other labor pockets around or that St. Louis is like just outstandingly especially good and that labor isn't an issue everywhere. One one good thing we do have is we, we are a city that's pretty darn decent about actually still having like strong, you know, labor unions anywhere from, from uh, you know, local ca- carpenters and pipe fitters to our grocery stores. We talked about schnooks, um, mm-hmm. but the actual workers there are unionized. Mm-hmm. And this all kind of kept going until the what we talked about back in 1972. It's very, it's very funny. Um, Pat Buchanan famously was writing for the St. Louis Globe Democrat at the time, and he portrayed the group Action, which are the ones that uh, did the uh, the protest to pull off the veil. Um, yeah. He portrayed them as a group of radical dissidents in the St. Louis Globe Democrat, which I thought was funny. I was like, oh, Pat Buchanan, look <laughs> at you go. Um and, and that really and, and then it kind of just kept going from there. It, it sort of ingrained itself as a cultural institution. It's always been about the very elite and the very wealthy of this city kind of celebrating itself um, yeah. and celebrating their role as, as protectors and the, the benevolent leaders of the city. Um, it, it no longer has been called the Veiled Prophet Parade. They changed it to Fair St. Louis back in the early yes. 90s. Yes. In fact, uh, I was born in 86. Um, I know you're a few years younger than me, Nathan, not much. Um, mm-hmm. But 
I've always always heard of it as Fair St. Louis, and I I mean I've lived out in the counties for a long time, right? I mean I was I I hadn't lived in St. Louis city limits since I was too small to have a memory, and so I just I've never been to it. I didn't know too many people, if anybody that's been to it, certainly not people that talked about it, but it just seemed like the big 4th of July thing that was advertised on the radio. So learning about a lot of this was kind of alarming, but apparently lots and lots of people from either the wealthier county areas, you know, the, the, the Webster Grove are the, well, not so much. Yeah, probably Webster Grove, but Ledoux's and Kirkwood's and, 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 and regions around there. And then a lot of people in this city and stuff, you know, people around here know what it is, right? Um, you know, the fact yeah. that I'm in my yeah, mid-30s knows what didn't it is. really until it was made public was more just because of where I lived in St. Louis. Yeah, I mean, everyone everyone that would go pretty well knows what it is. There's very few people that, that I, would hear it like me and be like, oh, it's the 4th of July thing that they say on the radio. Good night, Cecilia. And I went by accident a couple years ago because I it was we were going with my son. He wanted to go to mm-hmm. see a parade. He'd never seen a parade before. It's like, well, it's Fourth of July. There's a parade. Let's go to the parade. Let's see him a parade. And then I saw this oh because the procession still happens the same way. It's still the veiled prophet shows up, and they're the ones sponsoring it, and they're the ones that pay for it, and they still march this weird yeah. ass guy with his weird ass culturally appropriated Bengal guards down this float with this we- with this teenage girl sitting beside him that he's picked as his queen of love and beauty and it's just as creepy as it sounds it's very disconcerting um yes and And we should still happens every december we should advertise you know i mean these are teenage girls compared to the veil guy that is creepy as hell but also when we say these are teenage girls this is not like you know some 13 year old who parents roped her in and she doesn't know what's going on these are college students no these are and usually these college, are college ellie students, kemper was a they, ellie kemper was a freshman at princeton when she went when she won mhm and these are i mean obviously ellie kemper was going to princeton these are college students we talked about it from big elite families so these are not the groups of people like me who didn't know what the hell this was other than a 4th of july yeah. thing these people know what this is and they yeah. are they are in the eyes of like a relationship with creepy old veiled prophet guy. They're teenagers and that's creepy as shit. But in, in, in this grand scheme of like, did I know what's going on? Am I culpable for my actions? These are adults. And it's it's very it, and and for those that you know oh well well how Ellie Kemper she's an actor her dad was the CEO and chairman of the board for Commerce Bank at the time when she won yeah. um so again not another they, big they, they, this is the wealthy yeah. and connected this is the wealthy and connected of the city um mm-hmm. and that is our very long explanation of what the hell this is uh the only <laughs> the only side note I will make is that the 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 robes that very much look like Klansmen's robes. The historical debunking of that, if you want to do your Snopes, whatever bullshit, mixed mixed truth, is that yeah. the, that didn't yeah, I mean, become the, the, that didn't become the outfit of the Klan until twenty five years later after Birth of a Nation. The Klan was yeah. not using that as their as their robes or as their outfit until well later. So it, it, it is not it's not tied to the Klan. It doesn't have direct ties to the Klan. But that doesn't mean it's any less insidious, and it doesn't mean it's any no, less it's, rooted in systemic racism. It's a debutante ball that's rooted in race in the same way that's tied the the local elites in a state that has a terrifyingly large clan membership. It's it's yeah, I mean like you could snopes like untrue, but it's bullshit because it's it's technically untrue, but 
it's really true, right? Like, I mean, you could go, she was yeah. the princess of a debutante ball that's not connected with the clan, and da da da. And it is important to know that it's not just there is this one Ku Klux Klan, and outside of that, there's like no racism. Like, that's absurd, right? But, yeah. but also just the spirit, the understanding of stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, she would, to say she was the queen of a clan parade is, yeah, I mean, that's right. That's completely right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Um it's 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 like Eve Fartlow. Is it you know, is it true? Is that her last name? No. Is it way funnier to say it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. it's, it's far um, funnier. Yes, it's 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 far funnier. And uh and since we are on current events, um and there is a world outside of of uh you know Ellie Kemper and things, um a couple updates on on the world out there. We were talking about during the the pro and we know we know israel's you know attacking al-aqsa mosque again and and you know uh, trying to kick palestinians out of their home and i say trying they very successfully do that again and arresting children and they're, they're being israel um still uh but we talked about the u.s's other big power uh colombia and that is very hard to get information out of right now um but from what i understand the protests are still going very, very, very strong. And what I mean by very, very, very strong, Colombia's leadership is ruthless. People are dying. They are killing people for standing up and protesting because they are monsters and there is tragedy and loss of life. But there were lots and lots of people who have, you know, ran to Argentina to, to seek, um, I can't think of the word. Asylum. To another country. Asylum. Asylum. Seek asylum. That are returning, like people are flooding back into Colombia. Like this is serious shit. Now there were Palestinians doing that, and all it wound up with was a, a very historic and, and, and great work, you know, by the Palestinians standing up and, and getting that ceasefire and getting the world kind of rallied behind them and, and really showing Israel that they have power. And and uh, and we'll get back to that in a in a second too. Um, but I mean, obviously, like Israel didn't quite fall yet, even though it looked surprisingly like that might happen. Um, so, you know, this doesn't mean like Colombia is about to fall, although certainly, hopefully that's the case. And, and this would definitely be something you would see if that was the case, but things are heating up and people are returning to Colombia. And that is an outstanding sign. <laughs> um, yeah. elsewhere in Israel, of course, you know, Netanyahu's ass was booted, but it was booted so they can bring in someone more far right and even more genocidal because it's a settler colony. Yeah, yeah, and you don't want to see the guy that's further to the right of Benjamin Netanyahu necessarily, but uh, we'll, yeah, we'll find out. We'll, yeah, who's we'll, also we'll keep an eye on that. Also, one. now this guy, this guy was was born in in Israel, but he grew up in San Francisco. So I mean, all these people are, you know, they they're they're <laughs> as American every bit as they are Israeli. Every we're gonna time. get a tech. We're gonna get a tech guru. We're gonna get a tech guru right wing leader of. Uh, yeah. We're gonna get Peter Thiel leading Australia or leading Israel. That'll be good. Jeez. <laughs> oh God. All right. Well, I guess it's time that we do some reading. Uh, that yes. seems like a thing that we do do occasionally on this show. Yes. So let's do a little of it before we before we we sign off for today. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a longer episode, guys. So just just bear with us as we get through it. Uh, we're starting on the end of page five hundred six. A little bit of a recap from last time, and then moving on to page five hundred seven. Uh, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida is the chapter. The most energetic Negro on the Standing Committee on Penitentiary Investigation was Representative J.M. Sims of Chatham County. He had spoken only twice in 1868. On his return to the General Assembly in 1870, Sims offered many bills. Here we go. To amend an act for the more efficient preservation of peace and good order on election days in this state. To repeal an act prohibiting the sale and purchase of agricultural
agricultural products in the counties of Lowndes and Macon, to incorporate the Chatham Mercantile Loan and Trust Company, to repeal the act passed in 1869 to encourage immigration into the state, to repeal the local laws of Savannah and Chatham County so far as relates to the fees and cost of justices of the peace, notaries ex officio justices and constables in criminal cases and warrants to provide for the reopening of the books of registration by the clerk of the common council of the city of savannah two of these bills passed the last two were indefinitely postponed Representative and, and of Porter course was, that's oh yeah that's probably a mixed bag because we talked about this before you know i mean unfortunately when you know the black the leaders are in power they they really do side with labor in the general but they're also republicans and that is very much a corporate party but some of these we just don't have details on so you know yeah, when it talks the names about of like bills the names of bills are historically bad at trying to right. tell you what they actually do right and you talk about like a repeal the act passed in 1869 to encourage immigration to the state like how are they, what does are that they like mean? you know waiving taxes for immigrants like what that, that could go so many ways are but, they giving tax breaks to corporations that want to come in right. and and bring business more likely right but you know the the preservation of peace and good order on election days in the state that's obviously against you know the the lynch mobs and the intimidation against voters and things like that and so that's obviously yeah. good and so you know there's a lot packed in there yep Representative Porter was prominent. He was born in Charleston, South Carolina, of free parents. Before the war, he was a member of the Underground Railroad, and he opened a secret school in his home. He was a music teacher and tailor by trade. In 1856, he had won some distinction in music, which led by the Bishop of the Episcopal Church in Savannah to have him come there to train a choir for the St. Stephen's Episcopal Church. After the war between the states, Porter opened an eight-grade private school, and later on, he was called to be principal of the first Negro public school in Savannah. He left this position to become the first principal in the public school of Thomasville, Georgia. While there, he published his first book, English Grammar for Beginners. Finally, he became principal of a school in Yazoo, Mississippi. Porter was especially prominent in the school in the, was especially prominent in the Negro conventions which preceded the state conventions of 1867. Jefferson Long was sent to Congress from Georgia. He was born in Crawford County in 1836, educated himself, and went into business as a merchant tailor in Macon, Georgia. He was elected a representative from Georgia to the 41st Congress by a majority of 900 over Lawton, a Democrat. He was admitted to his seat January 16, 1871. The record of the Negro in Georgia's legislature is is creditable, and yet Clark Howell afterwards declared Negro members of this legislature were unlettered, ignorant politicians who seemed a stack of puppets and harlequins of a menagerie. There you go. The puppets and the harlequins. There you are. Yeah. Outrages... Outrages and guerrilla warfare against Negroes were widespread in Georgia. General Lewis of the Freedmen's Bureau reported 260 attacks, whippings, and murders of freedmen between January and November 1868. In September, there was a race riot at Camilla. Nordhoff found about 1875 that the Negroes in and near the cities and towns were usually prosperous. There are many colored mechanics, and they receive full wages where they are skillful. Near Atlanta and other places, they own small truck farms and supply the market with vegetables. There are fewer black than white beggars in the city, and a missionary clergyman surprised me by the remark that the blackberry crop, which was ripening, was a blessing to dozens of poor white families who he knew, who lived half the year, he said, in a condition of semi-starvation. There are many colored mechanics, and they are all thrifty people and very commonly own the homes they live in, and often a town lot besides. In the cotton country, an increasing number of colored men own farms of 40 to 100 acres, but many of these were free before the war. In the towns and villages, the, pe- the colored people have a prosperous look. They dress neatly and very commonly live in frame houses. On the whole, their condition appears to me very comfortable and satisfactory. He gives these facts. 
in an official report of Comptroller General for the state of, for 1874, giving the character and value of property and amount of taxes returned by colored taxpayers for the year, the number of colored polls listed was 83,318. These returned an aggregate valuable of taxable property amounting to 6,157,798, on which they actually paid 30,788 in taxes. They owed three, they owned 338,769 acres of agricultural land and city and town property to the amount of 1,200,115. Now, remembering that these people were slaves only nine years before, I think it clearly establishes that fact that first, they have labored with credible industry and perseverance, and second, they have been fairly protected in the rights of life and property by the democratic rulers of the state. I do not think the colored people in any other state I have visited own half as much real estate or indeed a quarter as much as those of Georgia. Again, owning land is an important thing, but gauging private yes. property as to the rights of your people is not necessarily the best method for doing so. Yeah, I was going to say they, they've been fairly protected by the Democratic rulers of the state because a few of them have money. That Yeah, exactly. You know. The difficulty of securing adequate wages led to a Negro labor movement. This step was undertaken by two Negro leaders, Congressman Jeff Long and State Representative H.M. Turner. Their purpose was to organize a union among Negroes, demanding a minimum wage of $30 a month for field hands and $15 a month for women. The convention received considerable notice, and the employers condemned it. There were strikes in Macon and Doherty County. In Houston County, there was agitation, and county associations of field hands were attempted. But this movement for rural unions was not very successful. Now, when Georgia, when oh, yeah. have business owners not pushed back on minimum wage and unions? Uh-huh. It's a tale as old as time. Georgia was thus a state where a coalition of planters and Negroes began before Reconstruction. But while the planters advised the Negroes and made fair promises, they took no active part with them. When the new political life began, the planters and the poor whites combined to put Negroes out of the legislature. David. The carpetbaggers and scalawags, they're back, formed they're a back. moderate block and fought with the planters to gain control of the poor whites. In this way, they succeeded and were able to ignore the Negroes, bribe white labor with silence, and make commerce and business triumphant in the state. Obviously, that has terrible, deadly ramifications. Uh, the carpetbaggers and scalawags spent money extravagantly, but they spent it in their printing and contingent funds with southern merchants and supply houses, thus combining capitalistic interests. Georgia does not represent the stock picture of a state looted by outsiders. It looted itself. Reviewing the events recorded from the beginning of this chapter, we observe that the period of Reconstruction in Georgia was not was not a period when a swarm of harpies took possession of the state government and prayed at will upon a helpless people. The Constitutional Convention of 1867-1868 forebodes such a period, but when conservatives rouse themselves from time to time on the stage presents an interest nascent war between two very well-matched enemies. This struggle is usually represented as between the wicked assailant and a righteous assailed. That was a struggle between Republicans and Democrats is much more characteristic. In such a contest, a mutual vilifying of course abounded, and it is not to be supposed a... Pro a priori, that the vilifying of one party was more truthful than that of another. Tale as old as old time. As time. None were more proud of the extravagance that accompanied this building of the commercial state than that than white Georgians. They welcomed the bearers of northern capital then as now. The most extraordinary man in the Reconstruction history of Georgia was Hannibal I. Kimball, who was a capitalist interested in railroads. Hey, we just talked about that. 
Hey, we just talked about this. And often associated for business purposes with ex-Governor Brown. He was especially close to Governor Bullock and was a focus of bribery and corruption. He was a type of class of expiring northern men who have rushed to the south since the war, some to run plantations, some to open mines of coal and iron, some to build railroads, others to establish great hotels, and all to give a grand impulse to southern progress and show the old fogies in the south how to do it. Many of these enterprising men have already come to grief and theft uh, grief and, left. and left the country, uh, while others in full career of fortune or her eldest daughter, misfortune. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a dad that's, joke. That's a, yeah, that's a dad joke. That's good. <laughs> uh, Kimball has been, of course, represented as bribing Negroes. But what Kimball and his kind bribed was the city of Atlanta, the state of Georgia and the whole South. And while he doubtless gave tens of hundreds to Negro legislatures, his thousands and tens of thousands went to the vast majority of white men who saw in him and his methods the salvation of the new capitalistic South, and who made wealth and advertising of Atlanta overshadow the old-fashioned conservatism of Savannah and Macon. Moreover, Georgia was not ruled by carpetbaggers. Facts do not warrant the description of Reconstruction government of Georgia as a Negro carpetbagger combination. There were some of both classes in the Constitutional Convention and in the legislature of 1868 already mentioned, and many in the federal service, particularly as internal revenue officers, but they generally held minor positions. This this sounds a lot, honestly, very much, and, and and you know it because I mean Hitler took a lot of cues from the, the Jim Crow in the South. This sounds a lot like if you're analyzing the whole, you know, Jewish conspiracy theory, Nazi Germany thing, right? Where it's like, oh, yeah. you know, Jews didn't control Germany. I mean, if you looked at all the bankers that actually controlled it, you could find a couple Jewish ones, but that wasn't the majority of Jews and the majority of bankers. You know, exactly. same kind of thing here. The planter candidate for governor who opposed Bullock testified in 1870 no more than a dozen former non-residents were holding office in Georgia, and that the judges appointed by Bullock were entirely satisfactory. The economic boom of Georgia was evident. The value of total property rose steadily from $191 million in 1868 to $234 million in 1871. By 1870, the cotton crop of Georgia had surpassed the largest crop raised under slavery, a proof that Negro labor had not been demoralized by emancipation. Manufactures increased during 1860 to 1870, and the lumber business greatly increased. There had been 643 miles of railroad in 1850, 1,420 in 1860. By 1870, this had increased to 845 miles and 1,845 miles. I said 1,845, didn't I? Oh, I thought you said 845 miles. Okay, I was like, no, sorry. It did- <laughs> and, and 2,160 in 1872. The business and industry industrial prosperity of georgia was largely at the expense of the laboring class the educational system was started but it received little support again tale as old as as old as time instead of preventing crime crime was deliberately increased by the convict lease system oh the prison industrial complex is here yes oh my god the more things change the more they stay the the more they stay the same the poor, the blind, and the insane were neglected, and although peasant farmers, because of the high price of produce, were able to buy some land, there was no effort to place large numbers of small owners on their old farms. There was no real labor legislation. On the other hand, capital began to receive large returns, and speculation was rife. 
It was of special interest to note that in Georgia, where the native white man never lost control, there was practically the same increase in debt and the same railway scandals. There was graft in printing, advertising, and attorney fees, and the state debt was greatly increased. So that including endorsed railway bonds, it reached a total liability of over $20 million in 1872, an ominous year based on what we talked about at the beginning of the episode. And this is a direct, this is a direct shot at all the, all the, you know, oh, well, when the black legislators took over and they had their way, it was, it was corruption and nothing but, nothing but, but institutions. And, and you just see a state where the whites never lost control. The exact same thing happened. It was literally just the part of reconstructing a section of the country that had been completely decimated by a war absolutely uh it may be gathered from this that extravagance and theft in the reconstruction south was a matter neither of race nor of geography rather okay, i should have let him talk <laughs> always let the boys talk uh rather it was a question of poverty opportunity and current american morals nevertheless there were in georgia the same charges of theft and waste as elsewhere and the same final desire to shoulder the blame on negroes in the election of December 1870, there was a large Democratic majority in both houses of the legislature, and Democrats continued in power. This sounds an awful lot like how Republicans will have shit tons of power in today's world. And of course, they're one of two corporate parties, and the corporations will have the power. But they're always powerless. They're always, And it's always everybody else's fault, because they have no power to stop them. They're the persecuted Republicans. Um, Poor Republicans. <laughs> Bullock, foreseeing impeachment, resigned in October 1871. The legislature met in November. In December, there were several investigating committees. Robert Toombs, fucking Toombs again, became prosecuting attorney because of course he did. And the investigations were thoroughly partisan because of course they were. Railroad manipulation in Georgia, as elsewhere, led to Wall Street and many financiers of New York, like Henry Clues and Company and Russell Sage. The acts granting aid to railroads were passed by votes of members of both political parties, and the state is considered secure against loss if the law to be properly enforced. The lease of the state-owned railroad undoubtedly involved corruption, but among the leases were former Governor Brown, Alexander Stevens, and Ben Hill, in addition to H.I. Kimball and others. Naturally, no Negroes were involved, except as possible recipients of bribes. Representative Turner seems to have worked hard to secure more reasonable terms, payment only after the work was actually finished. Bullock himself was charged with many financial frauds, but none of them were ever proven. His worst deed, the establishment of the convict lease system, was not held against him, but adopted by the state with avidity because of fucking course it was. Of course it was. Florida had long been a refuge for runaway slaves, and the desire to reclaim these slaves had led to the so-called Seminole Wars and the field and final annexation. There were 27,943 whites, 26,534 Negroes in 1840, the first census after the state entered the Union. In 1860, there were 77,746 whites and 62,677 Negroes. There were never as many as 1,000 free Negroes in the state before emancipation. Florida was a poor state with a small population. It had been dominated by rich planters, and the poor whites had little opportunity. The state, therefore, in many respects, resembles South Carolina rather than Alabama in that the black man was the dominant laborer and no white proletariat ever ruled. On the one hand, black labor never came to self-assertion, while white planters and carpetbaggers manipulated it from the first and gerrymandered its representation. White rule was ever in control, but it was only partially proletarian in character. 
Although there were hundreds of Negro soldiers in the state at the time of Johnson's proclamation, he ordered a convention based on white suffrage, and the convention met on October 2nd, 1865. It was composed entirely, almost entirely of Confederates, and the message of the provisional governor, Marvin, gave them encouragement. It is doubtful if there was any noticeable opinion among the whites in favor of Negro suffrage. Certainly, Marvin spoke decidedly against it. It does not appear to me that the public good of the state or of the nation at large would be promoted by conferring at the present time upon the freedmen the elective franchise. Neither the white people nor the colored people are prepared for so radical a change in their social relations. Nor have I seen any reason to believe that a considerable number of the freedmen desire to possess this privilege. Hmm, how many did you ask? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and again, th- these are always the excuse, right? The world's just not ready for it. Oh, they don't really want that. They don't know what they want. We know what they want. <sighs> The convention finally said the people of the state of Florida in general convention assembled, do ordain and declare that while we recognize the freedom of the colored race and are desirous of extending to them full protection, we declare it unal- the unalterable sentiment of this convention that the laws of the state shall be made and ex- executed by the white race. While we care the about con- you and we believe in your freedom, we just want to make sure we still have all the power. Just we hear just, you. Now yeah. we're going to run you over. Yes. The convention sat 12 days and adjourned for the ensuing election. E.S. Walker was elected governor. He recommended the removal of black soldiers from the state and advocated various black laws. He said with regard to Negro suffrage, each one of us knows that we could not give either an honest or conscientious assent to Negro suffrage. There is not one of us that would feel that he was doing wrong and bartering his self-respect, his conscience, and his duty to his country and to the union itself for the benefits he might hope to obtain by getting back into the union. Oh, good. (laughs) Not doing his duty to the union by doing what the union asks. A commission of three was appointed to report laws concerning the Negro. They recommended a county criminal court mainly for Negro offenders and that the same discrimination against emancipated slaves which had now been used against formerly free Negroes. They were not sure how they could keep the Negro at work and they were tearful concerning his future. Oh, let's hear these crocodile tears. If after all of this, their honest efforts shall prove unavailing, and this four millions of the human family, but recently dragged up from barbarism and through the influence of the Southern masters elevated to the status of Christian men and women, shall be doomed by the inscrutable behest of a mysterious providence to follow in the footsteps of the fast-fading aborigines of this continent. Oh, goody, you're invoking the indigenous people. Thank you. And when the last man of this race shall be standing upon the crumbling brink of a people's grave, it will be some compensation to the descendants of the Southern master to catch the grateful and benignant recognition of the representative man. But I don't know. I don't know. As he points with his withered finger to the author of his ruin and exclaims, thou did it. The black laws of Florida followed to save them from the ruin which inevitably awaits them if left to the tender mercy of canting hypocrisy and mawkish sentimentality which has precipitated them to the realization of their present condition. We know better. Paternalism at its best. There were the usual vagrancy and apprenticeship laws and laws against firearms. On the other hand, there were laws regarding marriage and the right to testify in court, but only in matters in which Negroes were concerned. After the federal law of June 1st, 1866, a large number of Negroes flocked to Florida. From 1865 to 67, the chief thought of the freedom freedmen of Florida as in other states concerned itself with that of the government of that 
of what the government was going to do for them with regard to farms, and they were victims of many speculators. The duel in Florida for the control of labor was between two sets of northern men, mostly federal office holders of various sorts and the planters. The policy of the planters was so to shift their influence between the northerners so as to gain their ends by political strategy, which they finally did. At the same time, they made some effective efforts to keep in touch with the Negroes so that they retained a good deal of influence over their vote. David. When the elections of 1867 under the Reconstruction Laws were about to take place, the Negroes sought to get in touch with the leading white Southerners. One meeting was held in Leon County and several white planters invited to address it and give the Negroes information as to their newly acquired duties as citizens. This increased the rivalry between the planters and the carpetbaggers, with the result that the planters made few further open efforts to cooperate with the Negro voters. The Southern whites tried to kill the convention by refraining from voting, so that the total vote cast was 14503 of which all but 1220 was cast by negroes in the convention of 1868 46 delegates returned 18 of those were negroes one of 27 whites two conservatives 15 carpetbaggers and the rest southern whites the most cultured members of the convention probably was jonathan gibbs a negro gibbs was a tall and slightly built black with a high forehead and a color indicating mulatto origin even when they're like saying respectable things about black people i just it all feels gross to read um his voice was clear and ringing he possessed some of the qualities of a born orator and a genuine sentimentalist. So, I mean, of course, there's still, you know, the, the, the most qualified person is black. They tried their little protest thing. And this is all after, you know, they're supposedly no better, you know, greeted us as liberators type bullshit. Um, E. Fortune, another colored member, was a native of Florida with a fair education, courageous in his opinions. Among other colored leaders were Armstrong, Oates, and Wallace, who wrote the history of Reconstruction in Florida. The convention, which met January 20th, 1868, had a colored man of Tallahassee, C.H. Pierce, as temporary president. He was not a strong man and was later convicted of technical bribery. But on the whole, his advice and efforts seemed to have been sincere, and he had the confidence of large numbers of colored people. So I'm guessing that conviction is probably a load of shit. Um, of the 46 delegates, there were only 20 present. Richards, a white man of, of Illinois, why is there a man from Illinois, uh, who, as Wallace <laughs> says, had only been two days in the county from which he had been returned was elected permanent chairman what the shit uh richards however struck the right note in a speech he said we should provide for a system by which all may obtain homes of their own and a comfortable living and provide for schools in which all may be educated free of expense Uh, okay maybe he's maybe he's cool maybe i'm too quick to judge clothe (laughs) honest industry with respectability inaugurate a public sentiment that shall crown the man with honors as the benefactor of his race who makes two blades of grass grow where one grew before and prohibit all laws that are not equal and just within our state okay so okay maybe maybe he's not bad maybe i was rushed to judge it just seemed a little we jumped to conclusions okay yes we we rightfully jumped to conclusions we're we're retracting it we're 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 retracting it we've got to be careful this book is is, is stabbed us in the back so many times because they i mean because it's honest (laughs) about history and american history turned on us that's right uh we just talked about sure's god damn it uh the first of a (laughs) 
The first difficulty was a matter of money. There was only $500 in the treasury, and the convention had to issue script to pay its expenses. The script circulated at less than par value and was made ex- and made the expenses appear much larger than they actually were. Two factions early developed among the carpetbaggers, and the policy of the planters was to wait and take advantage from time to time of the outcome of this internal fight. This left the Negroes in a particularly helpless condition, and it was only the ability and sanity of men like Gibbs that enabled them to make any headway at all. Thank you, Gibbs. You seem like a pretty cool Thanks, dude. Gibbs. On the second day of the convention, an ordinance... Yes, an ordinance was passed forbidding the sale of property for debt, suspending the collection of taxes, releasing all persons held to labor for non-payments of taxes, but not forbidding the laborer the right to collect wages from his employer. It was distinctly legislation in the interest of labor. I like it very much. Again, we've talked about this time and time again. When black people have been in charge, they have favored labor. That is in their class interest. The convention had been in session about two weeks when the planters took the took a hand. The two factions among the northern white leaders were conservative Osborne faction, which leaned toward the planters, and the more radical Billings faction, which sought complete control of the Negroes. So now we get our uh, House of Orleans versus House of Versailles shit go or House of Bourbon yep. shit going on. Um, the Osborne faction and the planters, under the leadership of ex Governor Walker, succeeded in breaking up the convention so that nearly neither had. nearly half of it seceded and went off secretly to a neighboring town to work on a constitution. This rump convention adopted the constitution and sent it to the federal general of the district for approval. They then took a recess. Afterwards, they returned to Tallahassee, broke into the legislative hall at midnight, and declared themselves the rightful convention. Not Really sure what's going on there? Was that was that the the, yeah. the convention that was happening before that was made of black people just broke broke in, or is this some white convention? Um, let's we're let's keep reading and find out. Okay, General Meade intervened and made two factions come together and adopt a constitution, which proved to be mainly the constitution drawn by the seceders. This oh, constitution good. this constitution was a peculiar document. That's always nice to hear. It put a vast appointing power in the hands of the governor, making him a practical dictator of the state. Oh, fantastic. And it was also charged that the basis of representation was so unfair that less than one-fourth of registered voters would elect a majority in the state, and less than one-third a majority of the assembly. 6,700 voters in the rebel counties elected as many senators, as 20,280 voters elected in the union counties. Seven senators are elected by 3,027 voters in rebel counties, and only one senator elected by 3,181 union county, Leon and 23 voters elect one senator in a rebel district. And we've talked about this before. I mean, this is this is kind of the uh, um, uh, electoral college type thing, right? Yeah. Oh, very elect- much so. Yeah, the electoral college was just, it was another form of the reconstruct, was another form of the three-fifths compromise based around land. And now you're getting that because these are southern white planters. They know this works for them. Yep. Uh, in the assembly of 8,300 voters in the rebel counties chose 27 members. Madison County Union with 1,802 voters sends two representatives, while the rebels sent from Dade County has a constituency of eight registered voters. Eight. 
This was accomplished by discriminating against the localities where the Negro vote was large so that Negroes never had the legislatures a representation anywhere near as large as their population called for. The Constitution relieved the former Confederates from taking the registration oath. Charles Sumner and others opposed the admission of the state under the Constitution, but nevertheless, after a delay from February to June, the state was admitted. In the election of the on the Constitution and for state officers, Billings was the candidate of the radical branch of the Northern White leaders, and the planters nominated a Confederate cavalry colonel. But in re- reality, through their support to Harrison Reed, the candidate of the Osborne faction, which had made the Constitution. The Republican ticket, headed by Reed, received 1,421 votes. The Democratic ticket, headed by Scott, 7,731, and the Independent Radical ticket, 2,251. In the first legislature, there were 17 Republicans and 8 Democrats in the Senate and 36 Republicans and 15 Democrats in the House. Of these 76, 19 were Negroes, 13 carpetbaggers, 21 Southern loyalists, and 23 conservatives. Harrison so Reed was this, a Jackson right? so Democrat got, and a we, formerly chief. Oh, yeah. Sorry. We know Republicans are supposed to be the whole anti-slavery, you know, anti-racism party but we also know of course it was littered with moderates and things like that and they just talked about those factions so you've got 36 republicans to 15 democrats and 19 of them were black which you compare to the population pretty good right but then you've got 13 carpetbaggers okay you know they've been sometimes with northern capital sometimes with black people whatever they're better than the scalawags i guess you know but then 21 southern loyalists you've got more southern loyalists than democrats or negroes in this and then 23 conservatives piled on top of that so obviously party lines are not a good measure here at all no Harrison Reed was a Johnson Democrat, not a Jackson Democrat, as I said before, I apologize, and formerly chief postal agent in Florida. He was President Johnson's inauguration as an unofficial representative of the state and was a strong opponent of Chase. He was a curious character. Like Warmoth of Louisiana, he was an adroit politician who was repeatedly threatened with impeachment, but he was not an, as unscrupulous a grafter as Warmoth and exercised his great power with considerable care. His policy was always to favor the planners as much as possible, and then when the Negroes or Northern Whites revolted, to ye- yield to them society sufficiently so as to retain their support in his cabinet the more important places were to ex slaveholders the number of negro members in subsequent florida legislatures is not clear wallace mentions 25 colored members of the house in the legislature of 1873 the number of representatives in the legislature who could neither read nor write during the seven years of carpetbag rule in florida was six of whom four were white under the Constitution, so, the governor. So, although we've talked about these rules to to lock out and and maybe I mean we're we're getting that may be a good wrap up spot, but it's something I just want to touch on. We've talked about these rules to basically knock out any sort of black power, and they use education because they were enslaved, right? They weren't offered education, and yet you've got six people who can't read or write, and four of them are white. Because, of course, you know, I mean, the, 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 everything is fine if it favors racism, if it favors the planters. Every single time. And I think you're right. That is as good a place as any to wrap up. Uh, we're going to start on page 516 on next uh, next episode. 
That being said, uh, as always, this has been Mark's Madness. We read books. Um, there are a number of ways that you can reach out to us if you'd like to do that. You can do so through our email address, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. That's marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. You can also get us on Twitter. Our Twitter is at marksmadnesspod. Or if you'd like a more uh, daily conversation or just a place to hang out and, and be with like-minded people and, and discuss anything from video games to the varying media to just whatever's going on in your life you can join our discord server uh we have an, uh, a growing discord server that i uh, love and cherish with all my heart uh and the link to that is in our twitter bio uh if you would like to hear a disclaimer from david on why we started this show and why we continue to do it that's coming up next david uh yeah so obviously me and nathan you know we kind of sat down one day and we were reading capital together and uh we decided when we were reading it we'd go ahead and record it because it's theory and anytime you're reading theory or history you want to have a discussion group so you're understanding it in context so you're tying it back to today so you're really getting more out of it and you usually want that discussion group to be more than two and so we recorded it just in case we could one day make it more than two and and we have and and we're glad you're here for that um but our goal since the beginning of making that discussion group larger than two is that hopefully you're in some kind of group some kind of organization some kind of party and you guys are doing political education and ideally uh your political education or your reading group would be doing these works and we would just be adding extra content or tying in the current events a little bit more and so that you can get more out of those works and just get a larger more in-depth uh reading group save for that uh save that very understandably those groups are reading much shorter works as they often do um and then hopefully if you're reading this on your own we can be that group discussion group we can uh you know read along with you uh or you know discuss the context of the current events with you and give you some of that feedback save for that save like you're either you know reading along and using this as kind of an enhanced ebook or when we summarize stuff as kind of your summary or cliff notes or whatever you want to call it whatever we can do to make that work more accessible to you because it's important to make that work accessible and give you that theory out there so that theory can guide your actions because without theory uh your actions are just charity or or agitation um and they aren't necessarily anything towards revolution uh whereas guided by theory uh that praxis whether it be mutual aid, whether it be political education, uh, whether it be protests or strikes, whether it be repelling down a line to unmask a veiled prophet, uh, those actions are now guided by theory. They're now praxis. Uh, and of course, without doing those actions, without the praxis, the theory means nothing. It's useless to, to have all this knowledge and never put it to use. Uh, so they are tied at the hip. They go hand in hand. Amen. As always, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.